Awesome. Fantastic. It's great to see you all. Welcome to every single one of you, particularly if you're new or you're not a regular part of our community. Welcome to you if you're watching online. Hi, Mum. Good to see you. And Dad, of course. Uh, I want to give a particular welcome to a very special couple. No, I, everyone's special. You're all special. But Jake and Olivia are getting married next Saturday. So next time we see them, they will be legally husband and wife. Woo! Bound under law. That's a wonderful thing. And uh, we've got other couples getting married uh, all the time. So, uh, yeah, just like to throw that out. Plug for marriage. <laughs> Coming soon to you. A marriage. We've been doing this series on David. We started it last week. The idea is that David, it's the rise and the fall. Now, if you're new to um, faith or church is not a normal thing in your diet, then you may have heard the story of David and Goliath, and that's all that you know about David. Or maybe you've heard about David and Bathsheba. Even for those of us that have been brought up in church, it's possible to know just the, the good stuff, the highlights about David's life, but not know some of the other stuff that goes behind the scenes. One of the amazing things about the Bible is that it it actually gives us an insight into a real person with real issues that we can really identify with and shows us the flaws as well as the successes. We want to talk about success. We want to talk about failure. We want to talk about the challenges that we've got. Sometimes when people come to church, they think, oh, well, I'm here at church so that I can learn the truth. I'm here at church so that I can get informed about what I should believe in or what the Bible teaches. And if I have enough truth, if I have enough understanding, if I believe the right things, then I'll behave and act in the right way. But it's not always the case. David was a man who not only knew the Bible, not only had read the Bible, he actually wrote parts of the Bible. And yet, even parts of the Bible that he himself wrote, he found himself not doing. I don't know how many of you get frustrated from time to time because you're trying to live a good life. Whether you have faith or not, all of us, we're trying to live a good life. But all of us have that experience where I want to do the right thing. And most of the time, I'm pretty good. But from time to time, I find myself being tripped up, and it's so frustrating. And when I want to do the good thing, I end up not doing it. And when I don't want to do something which is going to be self-sabotaging or it's going to be toxic, I sometimes find myself against my better judgment, even though at the time that I'm actually doing it, thinking this is a bad idea, I don't want to do this, but I do it anyway. Why is it that we can know all the truth and know all the right things and have all the best intentions and still yet mess up? How many of you have an addiction in your life or, or an area of, of massive challenge that you kind of feel like, oh, I've got these times when I'm really on top of it and it's really going well and then something will happen and you're right back to square one. It's like snakes and ladders. You just slide back down to the, the kind of the behavior that you just really regret and that you want to break free from. And it feels like if you just knew what you were doing and what you believed in, you'd be able to live that way. But all of us were tripped up because actually there's more to it than that. And what the story of David that we're going to look at over these next few moments, what it teaches us is that there are certain warning signs that make us susceptible 
susceptible to getting into trouble and, and kind of messing up and, and getting ourselves tied up in knots. And actually, some of the times, if we can just understand what's going on and recognize these kind of the warning danger signals, actually, we do a whole lot better at being the kind of people that we want to be and living the kind of life that we want to live and, and really being our best selves. So we're going to look at this character, Doeg. Everyone say Doeg. Who's put your hands up if you've heard of Doeg, Doeg the Edomite? Okay, not well known. Uh, put your hands up if you've heard of Nob. Yes. Okay, thank you, Hern. <laughs> okay, all will be revealed. But first, let's just do a little recap because uh, if you missed it, you really need to catch up on Matt's uh, fantastic talk last week, just opening up this series because he did the kind of the, the classic one, David and Goliath. And his point, the big idea from the whole message was this. If you want to realize your calling, you've got to practice your gifting and trust your anointing. The idea being that all of us have a calling, a destiny, a purpose, something that we have to do. But if you want to walk into that, realize it, understand it and fulfill it, you've got to practice the natural innate gifts that God has given you. But at the same time, you've got to rely and trust on God's anointing. The anointing means the presence of God. God's kind of promise to be with you, to equip you and to empower you. And David had this encounter with Goliath, and normally we frame it as this kind of unbelievable one-sided contest. But actually, the way that the Bible frames it is that David had full confidence in God. He had done his prep. He knew how to hit a sling, uh, a slingshot. And yet at the same time, he said, I've practiced my thing, but I know that unless God comes in to help me, I'm going to fail. David versus Goliath, one-on-one, close quarters combat, it's all over. David is dead. He stands not a single chance. But he knows that if I can keep this guy at bay, if I can get my one shot off, and if that shot goes accurate and true, I can at least stun him, and then he's all mine. And Goliath comes in with all this regalia. He's got the armor, he's got the helmet, he's got the javelin, he's got the sword. And he has this incredible, powerful sword. David has no sword. He doesn't take a sword because he says, listen, the real battle in life is not about how strong you are, how gifted you are, and, and what kind of sword that you're carrying. It's about how God helps you. It's about God being on your side. So I don't need a sword. And your sword is going to be of no use to you, Goliath, because it's not about swords and it's not about spears. It's about the power of God and the promise of God to always honor those who give their lives fully over to him. So that's the story of David and Goliath. We move on. David at this time, he's a teenager. Um, now things move on. He becomes famous. He becomes the most famous man in the whole of the kingdom. And all of a sudden, there's this beef between him and Saul, the king. And having been kind of, oh, this is my boy. This is David. He's the one that has helped us. And being the kind of the golden child, now David comes into this antagonistic relationship with Saul. And things escalate. Saul's jealousy just gets out of check to the point where Saul feels so threatened by David as a rival to the throne that he tries to kill him and uh, David kind of puts up with it and tries to get himself out of these difficult situations but finally it just comes to a head and he knows that if he stays he's going to be killed and so he goes on the run and that is where we pick up our story of uh, David and Doeg so it says this David went to 
Nob. Now, Nob is this little town in the tribe, the tribal lands of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. And uh, it is it's the place where David flees. He flees from Jerusalem, goes to Nob, and there he goes to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him. In other words, something so difficult, challenging, is happening. Everyone knows it. As soon as Ahimelech, who's a high priest, sees David, he's like, oh no, this, this is not good. This, this is not, not good. David, everyone knows that Saul and David, it's come to boiling point. Everyone knows that it's tipped over. That it is this powder keg waiting to explode. And no one wants to be caught up in that. No one wants to be collateral. And here's David coming and he does not look right. I mean, he looks like he has been running all night. He looks haggard and crazy and wild-eyed. And so Ahimelech trembled when he met him. And he said, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? This is so weird. What is going on? What do you do? David had visited the high priest many times with his guard and with the, the kind of the army that he got to rule over and, and command. But now he's all on his own, and it's just something is so off. And this is the point, this is the point, where David, who knows the truth, and David, who knows what the right thing is to do, David, who can make good decisions, David, who is wise and compassionate, this is the point where he can reach out to the high priest and say, listen, Ahimelech, I, I'm in need, I'm in, I'm in deep trouble. I've tried my best, I've been faithful to Saul, but he's just got it in his head that I'm against it. I, I, I just need a little bit of help. But he makes this really, really tragic decision. And as a result of this decision, one of the worst things in all of Scripture that Scripture records happens. David decides to spin this kind of bizarre line. David answered Ahimelech, the priest. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a, uh, a certain place. Now then, uh, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So it's just this kind of cock and bull story about, yeah, I'm on a secret mission. Top, top secret. In, in fact, my, my men, uh, you know, secretly, we're going to meet in a certain secret place. Can't tell you anything about it. By the way, I'm starving. You got any bread? And it's just so, so weird and so, so odd. And then a point comes, a little chink of truth, a little revelation of a reminder of who God is and what David really needs to be doing. You need to trust God. You trusted God with Goliath. Why can't you trust God to deliver you now? Nothing Things changed. And so Ahimelech the priest says this. But the priest answered, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided for the men, provided the men have kept themselves from women. What's the consecrated bread? Well, the consecrated bread is what the priests would use to offer on the altar. Now, if you know about the altar, or if you've heard about you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, in those days, there's no temple, there's no kind of formal place where it resides. It's on a kind of moving feast, you know, that it has no fixed abode. There's just this kind of tent, holy tent called the tabernacle, which contains the Ark of the Covenant and all the priestly stuff. And it would travel from place to place. Right now, it's in knob but it's basically a kind of temporary temple and on it 24 hours a day 24 7 they will put this consecrated bread 
And the bread was always on the temple, always before God. And it was the bread of the presence. It was called the bread of the presence of God. And it was a reminder, God's presence is with you. And God provided you manna in the wilderness. And God can provide for your needs. And so Ahimelech, the priest, says, listen, we've got no normal bread. But actually, because this bread was sort of on a rotating thing where they'd bake bread, consecrate it, put it on the altar. Then they'd break some more bread, consecrate that, and then swap it over. And the bread that they took off the altar, well, the priests could eat that. And you weren't supposed to, but technically, you could give that to whoever you wanted if you were sharing hospitality. But Ahimelech is saying, God's presence. Do you know the bread? The bread that reminds you that God can always take care of you. But David blows straight past it. David replied, yeah, yeah, sure, goes on with his lies. Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual. Whenever I set out, the men's bodies are holy, even on missions uh, that are not holy. How much more so today? Because I'm on a special, secret, super holy mission. And instead of pausing and thinking, actually, this is a wake-up call, he just goes straight in. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. What's going on here? It's not like David doesn't know the right thing to do. Like I said, David wrote the Bible. He wrote so many of the Psalms. One of his most famous Psalms was actually written at this very time. David, at this point, is around about 24 years old. He writes Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse uh, 12, it says this. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. One of David's top hits. We can come to church and we can hear the right things. We can say the right things. And we, like David, we can sing the right things. We can sing worship. We can know it. We can believe it. And yet, why do we find ourselves in situations where we don't live the way that we believe? We don't do what we sing. We don't walk what we talk. Why is it that we do that? Well, there's three things. If you look at the passage, I don't know if you picked this up, but there's three things about David that uh, are universal that we can all identify with. Basically, David was sad. Everyone say sad. 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 Thanks, Alan. You put a bit of emotion into that. Um, Sad. S-A-D. S stands for stressed. The Bible says that when Ahimelech saw David, he trembled. David is at the most critical point of his life. He is under more pressure than he's ever been in his whole uh, existence on planet Earth. Everyone is stressed out. He is just exuding pressure and stress. And when we are under stress and when we are under pressure, it makes us do things. Stress has a way of forcing you to act quickly against your better judgment and pushing you down a road that you wouldn't normally go in, not in a million years, but when I'm stressed, when I'm under pressure, when I'm feeling like my back's against the wall, that's when I lose my nerve. That's when I stop trusting God. That's when I take matters into my own hands. Secondly, he's alone. He's stressed, but he's alone. So Ahimelech, the priest, says, why are you alone? Where are your men? Not just regular guys, but the guys that have your back, the, the fighting men. Where are those guys that, that you, you fight shoulder to shoulder with? Why are you on your own? He's utterly, totally, completely isolated. Even his greatest allies are with Saul. He's had to run on his own. 
And when we're on our own and when we feel isolated and we don't have other voices in, we can make such, such bad decisions. But the third one, D, he's just depleted. I mean, it's just such a very, very human, practical thing. The first thing that he says after he's got over this whole story about the secret mission, you got any bread? I'm starving. Yeah, I've got loads of men. Um, yeah, five loaves. That will just do fine for, for all, my, all my men. They're, they're very light eaters. But yeah, that would be great. He's depleted. He's just hungry and tired and sleep-deprived. Now, you take any one of those things, and they can lead you to making bad decisions, things that you regret down the line. But you put them all together, and you have to be very, very careful. And these are warning signs that we need to pay attention to. When I'm stressed, when I'm isolated, when I am depleted. Stressed, alone, depleted. Stressed, alone, depleted. I find myself in those kinds of situations, and it can utterly trip me up. But the story doesn't stop, because David gets another jolt of truth. It's like another opportunity to get off this crazy train. A a, a great, you can't think of a better, more powerful visual aid. It's like God says, look, we need to stop him from doing this stuff. Let me give him something that really brings him to his senses and wakes him right up. It goes like this. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't bought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. So it's like so super fast, super urgent. Didn't have time to take my sword. You know, it's completely reasonable. And then here it comes. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here. But that one, get it? And at this point, David is supposed to say, oh my goodness, what am I thinking? Goliath's sword couldn't save Goliath. And even when Goliath himself, the greatest warrior that the ancient world had ever seen, when he was wielding it, it wasn't enough because God's grace and God's power and God's anointing took him down. And I did all that and God had my back when I faced my greatest foe. David should have just had this bowl of insight and revelation. What am I doing? What am I thinking? It's a sword of Goliath. I don't, it didn't help him. It's not going to help me. It's not about swords and spears. If God has called me to be king of this people, he'll take care of me. But instead, sad David, stressed, alone, depleted. He says this. There's none like it. Give it to me. This is the point that we find ourselves in so many times where we just feel like, I don't trust God. I know he may have done good things for me in the past, but I just don't, I I can't see it happening in the future. We all know what it's like to be sad, to be stressed, to be alone, to be depressed. How many of you, and you don't put your hand up to this, but how many of you have done things or you got yourself into a situation where you just thought, I never thought that I would get into this, but you find that actually, if you think about it, you were either stressed or alone or depleted. Or maybe you were a couple, or maybe you were all three. Our most challenging times, the things where we do the thing that we never thought we would do, often it's because we're stressed, we're alone, we're depleted. You may know about uh, workplace affairs. It's uh, something that I kind of um, have 
just yeah, spoken about quite a lot with my work for Care for the Family. But uh, affairs happen in the workplace a lot, more than you would think. And one of the um, misconceptions that people have about affairs in the workplace is that people think, oh, it's because everyone's got too much time on their hands. Or they're going on all these conferences and, and off-sites and all those kinds of things. And they're they just kind of bored and, and they idle hands, idle hands. And, and what's the phrase? <laughs> Devil makes work for idle hands. You know, it's just because they've just got too much time or just too much opportunity. Actually, the number one reason that people have um, affairs in the workplace, one of the number one reasons is stress. It's because you're under such high-pressure situations. Um, so I, I know this, but funny thing was, I thought, you know what, uh, I wonder how I can relate to this. Um, let me find some research, let me find a quote. And so I went um, and did a little bit of digging, and I found this quote from a psychologist who says this, Dr. Chloe Mitchell. She says, it's these colleagues who have a deep understanding, so the colleagues that you might end up having an affair with, these colleagues who have a deep understanding of the pressures at work, not the family or partner at home. This creates a feeling of being alone and feeling depleted mentally, emotionally. The desire to connect and release the stress and tensions becomes too overwhelming. Do you notice our things are all there, stressed, alone, and depleted? I don't know, I, I literally found this um, a couple of days after I wrote this message. I wrote it, and then I found the quote a couple of days later, and I felt a little bit, I don't know, it's like, wow, the very same thing. And I thought, oh, it's going to look like I've just cribbed it off this psychiatrist. But honestly, I got it from the Bible. But it's like, again and again, the Bible gets proved by science. You know, because these are just human things. These are things that we all are susceptible to. When I'm under pressure, when there's a lot on the line, when I'm feeling stressed, when there's just a lot at stake, and I can feel alone. And it's interesting that that sense of being alone is not physically alone, but it's, it's emotionally alone. I don't have anyone who understands me apart from this other person. And then depleted, I'm just depleted mentally, I'm depleted emotionally, I might be depleted physically. I have this thing, um, Kate can tell you, but a lot of the times I've had my worst moments in December, around about Christmas time, uh, I have had issues where I have <laughs> fallen out with colleagues, again, at work, and I work in the church, uh, I have uh, been on the verge, or I have actually... Um, thrown in my towel and made decisions to, to quit and, and all kinds of awful things because um, it just all comes to a head. And at the time, it feels totally, completely normal and rational and, and easy to understand. And it's only afterwards that I think, oh, do you know what? I was just so, so tired. You know, Christmas, at the end of all the stuff that you do in church, it's just exhausting, exhausting, exhausting. And it's the end of the most exhausting time and very often I find I'm just utterly totally drained and depleted and then I can get into these antagonistic things and I just feel you know up for a fight and I I, I just say things that are, I wouldn't no I don't mean that I, let me take that back but in the heat of the moment I'm sad and it's incredible how those things can lead us to do things that we would never expect you know, some of us, you know, we have addictions in our life and, and areas of brokenness, areas of challenge. 
It might be pornography. It might be alcohol, abusing alcohol. It, it might be, you know, out-of-control behaviours with, with, um, with people, uh, using people, abusing people, uh, what you do on a night out. And, and it may be that you think, actually, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to do that stuff. I want to live my best life. But you get into a certain situation, you know, pornography. You get to a situation where you're just, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of stress in your life. And you, you can feel like, oh, I'm, I'm all on my own. And, and I, I, I wish I had someone with me. And, and you can feel depleted, just worn out, tired. And then you get into these situations and it's just warning, 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 warning. Danger, danger. And then you find yourself tipping back into disruptive unhealthy behaviours because you were sad, you were stressed, you were alone and depleted. The problem is there's consequences. There's always consequences. And the consequences are worse than we anticipate. And this scenario that goes on, actually when it's happening with David, when it's playing out, it's, it's quite comical. You know, I'm on this secret mission. So secret that uh, my men have disappeared. And uh, so urgent that I didn't have time to, to pack a, a sword. So I thought I'd just drop in at church and see if there was any armaments in the church. It's, it's a little bit bizarre. And it's quite, you know, lighthearted. And then this kind of change in the soundtrack comes. This kind of booming looming bass line. It says this. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. Who's detained before the Lord? Someone that is very zealous about their faith. Someone who is a hardliner about the God thing. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. And what happens is this very zealous guy who puts his loyalty to the king above everything else because the king is God's representative. He actually ends up going to Saul and Saul is doing his nut. He's trying to hunt David down. He's accusing all his sub-commanders of working against him and uh, can't find David anywhere. And then Doeg stands up as the chief shepherd and he says, I saw David. I saw David at Nob and the priest helped him. And then suddenly you realize that the, these little white lies that David has told has completely endangered this high priest. And it's made him complicit. You know, David has shown up and the priest, trembling as he is, in good faith, has given him the talismanic sword of Goliath and given him the holy bread. The, the priest, is, it's their privilege and prerogative to eat and them alone. He's aided and abetted the most wanted man in the kingdom. So Saul turns up to Nob and he says, I want that high priest killed. Who's going to do it? And one by one, all of his commanders say, like, no, no way. We're not going to take up arms against the high priest. It's not going to happen. We, we can't. This is an evil, evil thing. But Doeg, the zealot, he says, I'll do it. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. It is staggeringly awful. It's this massacre. The reason you've never heard of Nob, you've heard of Bethlehem, you've heard of Jerusalem, no one's ever heard of Nob because it doesn't exist after this day. It is raised to the ground. 
It is the most shocking thing. The entire priestly clan wiped out by one man. It's just inconceivable how awful this thing is. It's consequences. And here's the thing about consequences. You can choose your actions, but you can't choose their consequences. So I can find myself in a situation where I make a bad decision, I go down a bad path, I fall back into destructive behavior, I self-sabotage. That's bad enough. But I've chosen to do that. What I cannot choose is how the consequences play out. And so often, consequences in our life as a result of negative behavior and us doing things that even at the time we think, oh, I, I knew I shouldn't have done that, that I knew this was not going to end well. Those consequences can be so, so out of proportion to anything that we could have possibly anticipated. I remember one of my friends, a uh, guy, yeah, I won't say his name actually, uh, <laughs> Photographer friend of mine. We used to do a lot of stuff together, um, but he he had a very very acrimonious divorce. Um, he lost his children. He lost his wife. He lost his home. Uh, he was just in this bedsit, and he he just used to grumble and complain to me. Uh, and he he always said to me, he said, Philip, the thing is, all I did he had a thing with a girl at work, but he said, I just kissed her. It was just one. I knew it was wrong. I told my wife. I don't know, maybe there were other factors in the equation. But he just kept coming back to, I did this thing. I knew it was wrong. I took this, maybe, I don't, I don't know why he got into this situation. All of us are prone to just self-sabotage and, and getting ourselves in situations like this. When we're stressed, alone, depleted. But the consequences can sometimes just run and rage out of control. And David, he is on the run. And what happens is there's one guy that manages to escape. It says this, But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell I could see it slow motion train. I just couldn't help myself. I was just, I wasn't myself. I wasn't strong. I just, I was taking things into, I was trying to make things better. I, I wanted to mitigate. I didn't, didn't want to, to draw him into my mess. I, I thought this was keeping him safe. I, I knew that he would tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. And then this remarkable thing. Stay with me. I mean, did you ever see two more different sentences stuck together? I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. Thanks, that's very encouraging. <laughs> you will be safe with me. This is just the whole story of, of Doeg and Nob and, and the, the massacre and the slaughter of the priests. It, it's one of the lowest, most horrific points in David's life. And yet God is still able to redeem it, to bring something out of it. Because as you track the story through the chapters and the years as they go forward, Abiathar does indeed stay with David. 
Abiathar becomes the high priest. In fact, it's Abiathar who there, roughly five, six years later, is standing in the holy place, laying the crown down on David's head. Tobiathar, who's there with David for the rest of his life, they grow old together. They reach old age. Stay with me. Stick with me. Be with me. Abiathar is one of David's greatest, most trusted advisors and counsellors. Because when I'm stressed and alone and depleted, there's not always that much I can do about stress. It's a, it's a function of life. I'm going to go to periods of my life when I'm under pressure, and that's just the way that it is. And I, I, I can do something about being depleted Physically, but a lot of the time emotionally, it's just going to take me time. And I, I need to buy myself time. But, but I can do something about being alone, being isolated. I can have someone and say to them, stay with me. Stick with me. And this is one of the great lessons that David learns from this whole situation. It's, it's a horrific situation. But there is this kind of glimmer of, of grace that comes at this time because David stays with Abiathar and Abiathar stays with David. That's why when we talk about our vision um, in church, we talk about not just finding Jesus, but we talk about loving one another. That's why we have such a high premium on hubs, our midweek groups. We say to people, we need to be in intentional, committed relationship with one another. That's why we have the whole thing with mentoring. If you don't know what we do, we basically, we encourage people to, to form accountable friendships and relationships where we're meeting up regularly, where we can bounce things off one another. We can check out decisions. Before I do something that I could live to regret, I want to have someone that I, I can talk to. That's why we make a big deal about it, because it's not enough just to know the stuff. It's not enough just to sing the stuff. I need to have someone to help me work through the stuff. I have a friend, I've talked about him before. He's going to come to Metro soon. Uh, but we have walked together consistently for many years. We've known each other since we were in our 20s. But for the last 14 years, every Friday, give or take, we have walked together. Every Friday we walk and we talk and we pray. And I say to him, stay with me. Stick with me. And he stays with me and sticks with me. I saw him just this last Friday and I said, hey, you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Uh, I need to tell you my stuff. I need to confess my sin to you. I need to tell you how I'm feeling about certain things. I'm about to go off and, and I could make some bad, ill-considered decisions. Just check me out. Just help me. And the number of times that he's scooped me up, and the number of times that he's spoken truth to me, the number of times that he's kind of rebuked me gently, kindly. But I need someone. Stay with me. Having a mentoring relationship or being in a, a triplet, a peer mentoring triplet or a prayer triplet or, or just having people that I am committed to and intentionally looking to do my faith with is such a big deal. It means that when you go out and you're on that Friday night thing and there's no other Christians in sight and it's just your work colleagues or it's just your flatmates or no one else has the same kind of value system as you, you know there's someone back there, even if they're just Back in the distance, praying for you, or on the end of the potential phone, you're not on your own. You've got someone who's checking in with you. 
I have a bunch of guys who actually ask me, it's a real privilege actually, but they say, Philip, can we make ourselves accountable to you for our use of pornography? And uh, this kind of software that you can get, and I, I just get little emails that, that flag up anything that they want me to kind of come in on and, and help them with. Because we can all do good things when we're feeling good, but when I'm stressed, when I'm alone, when I'm depleted, oh, I I, uh, how did I get into this situation? And this thing that we learn from David, in fact, this is our big idea. When we are stressed, alone, and depleted, we can make bad decisions that have even worse consequences. Prioritizing community and accountable relationships makes all the difference. What I want us to do is I want us just to have a time of, of prayer before the band come back up. You know, when we talk about this stuff, you know, the, the, the David stuff, is, it's horrific. Actually, a little bit of a, a thing for next week. This is a really exciting but also kind of sketchy uh, time in David's life. But one thing about it is that he does get together this band of brothers. Uh, and he pulls together a community uh, that he can, yeah, basically do life with. And... It is just a, a crazy, insane story what happens after this point. But, you know, we, we talk about this stuff and it can bring up things and, and it can reveal regrets that we're all carrying. And what I just want to do is I just want to pray and ask that God would give us his grace. I pray that we would just know his kindness and his love, his mercy and his forgiveness. The amazing thing about David is that you can read the Psalms that he wrote after this. You can read Psalm 34, read Psalm 52. He talks about this stuff. And you see in him a man who is devastated by what he has done, but finds hope and grace in his Father God. And that is an amazing place to be. It means that even though we're prone to failure, we don't need to dwell on that. We know that God our Father is able to redeem. He's able to pick us up. And he's able to bring something good, even out of the horror and the worst situations. None of us are ever going to be in a situation like David. But even in that worst case scenario, God is able to bring a lifelong blessing to David and to Abiathar out of it. And God can do the same with us. God can take any brokenness, he can take any pain, he can take any missteps, any regrets, and he can work them together for good. He can make us the people that we want to be. He can allow us and enable us and empower us and fill us to be our best selves, who he has made us to be. So I just want to take a moment and pray that God will just give us a sense of his grace, his mercy, and that God would help just, yeah, take away any issues that we've been struggling with. And I, I want to pray that actually some of us are able to move from this evening and start putting into place people, hey, will you stay with me? Will you walk with me? Some of us to make a commitment. Actually, I need to, to prioritize hub and I need to prioritize that kind of community of people. At the very least, to be around on Sundays where I can, you know, feel like I'm not on my own and I'm getting positive um, encouragement from the body of Christ. But right now, let's just take some time, let's meditate and let's be quiet before God. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes and just take a moment of silence.
just want to create a little space and a little moment for you. But this is particularly for those of you that actually when I'm speaking about uh, times of regret or negative behaviours or areas in your life of, of addiction or, or controlled behaviour, actually this is really hitting for you. I just want to pray, I'm not going to ask you to go public on this, but I'm just going to pray a prayer of grace and mercy and forgiveness and purity. You know, the Bible says that God is faithful and he is just, and if we for, uh, confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He can make us good again. So if that's you, I just want to give you a little moment just to say before God the area of regret that you're carrying, or the area of disappointment in your life with yourself. Just bring it before God. And I'm going to pray a prayer. Lord God, I thank you that you said that you are faithful. You are just. You're loving. You don't condemn. But you come to restore and to redeem. And there's no situation that you cannot make good. That your light cannot shine into. There's no darkness that can overcome that light. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring right now your grace, your love, your purity, your peace of every situation. Father, I would pray that you'd break destructive patterns with alcohol, destructive patterns with relationships that get broken apart because we make bad decisions. Lord, would you break apart everything that mars your image in our life? And would you bring release to us, I pray. And Father, I pray as well that we would each find people that can stay with us, people that can hold us to account, that can be the hands and feet of Jesus to us. Lord, I pray for brothers and I pray for sisters. I pray for mothers and I pray for fathers. I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to demonstrate more and more a godly community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.